Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Okay, we are in Titus, so if you'll please turn to Titus chapter 2 and stand for the reading of God's word. Titus 2, 15 through 3, 3. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? You can sit, you can stand, whatever helps you just be still before the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, I just want to thank you for the idea of the local church. We're going to see it in this passage. I can see it in my life. I am marked by the grace of your people in my life. The grace of your word has changed my life. And God, I I realize that today we're gathered here, we're only a fraction of the worldwide church. Uh, We are part of a movement that started long ago and cannot be stopped because you are the power behind it. God, I pray that we would find our place in that movement. I pray that we would be inspired to know that all over the globe, even right now, people are gathered in your name. They've worshiped, they've proclaimed your name in song like we did. They've come before you in prayer and repentance. They've taken communion. They've opened the word of God because we stand before you humbly, expecting you to move, God, in the church globally and in this church here. So God, I pray that you would do what Tony started off with today, that you would point out anything in us that is offensive to you. You would lead us in the way everlasting, that you would move our hearts to conviction. You would move us to confession God, you would move us to repentance through the power of your word. God, all scripture is from you, and it points to your son. So in his name, amen. Amen. So I want to first tell you that uh, this really is the way I talk. (laughs) And uh, this is way better than it used to be. So when I go back to Louisiana, where I used to live, they all say, you sound like a Yankee. And then I come up here. Right? That's funny, right? Yeah. So then I come up here, and uh, you people are like, God, where are you from? Mayberry or what? You know, some, uh, Mayberry's a show that used to be on TV. You guys are too young for that. So anyway, we're, Church at the Well, man, it is good to be with you. I, I, am, I just love your church. I love your pastors. Uh, I love, really love Matt, and I, but, but Kevin has more room, so I usually stay with him. And Christy's there, and she's awesome, and Anna, and Lacey, and... Uh, but anyway, these guys, man, they, they love you. I don't know how much they brag on you to you, but they brag on you to me all the time. And uh, one of my favorite things that, that I've been looking forward to is to be here when you sang and to be here when you gathered and greeted one another. And what a beautiful, beautiful sight that was. And so we're going to be in, in, in Titus. I don't, I don't know how, what you guys are used to, but I'm a pretty simple guy. I just like to to walk through the passage, so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to go a little at a time, and we're just going to walk right through it. But I want to review where we've been, because I think it's been a little while since you were in the beginning of Titus. I know last week, uh, Pastor Matt did an awesome job with the end of uh, the middle portion of of, of chapter 2, but I want to just 
remind us what's happening here, all right? Um, we've used the word disciple a couple times today. I heard Kevin say it twice. I, I heard it earlier today that we, we're disciples. And, and so at our church, we, we do everything we do, uh, and it's no secret, we do everything we do to try to get people into discipleship environments. And we believe that discipleship happens in the context of relationship. And that in relationship, when, when someone who's, who, who loves God is moving towards God and helping someone else to do that, then moving towards Jesus changes us. And we find over that, over that time, over time, as we're being changed by Jesus, that we find ourselves living the mission of Jesus. And I think the book of Titus is a beautiful picture of how that happens in the context of the church and in the context of relationships. So I want to point out a couple of things. So the guy writing this book is a guy named Paul. And I love that the Bible has guys like Paul in it, because you know what Paul was not? Paul was not awesome. Uh, he used to be a guy named Saul, and people think that when he got saved, Jesus changed his name, like he changed his name from Saul to Paul, but really when he's among the Hebrews, he's Saul. When he's among the Greeks, he's Paul. It's just how, how it worked back then. But when he was known as Saul, he was a, basically a terrorist for, 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 the, for the Jews. He was a terrorist for the Jewish religion, and he was just out to, to kill any opponent to their way. Like he was so zealous for righteousness, so zealous for what he believed was truth, that he would, he would literally imprison people like us. Like he would, he, we would fear him if he was in our city. We would fear Saul would come here, shut us down, drag us back to Jerusalem for a kangaroo court, probably stoning us, caning us on the way, and throwing us in the, into really nasty prisons, and maybe we don't even see the light of day. Or at minimum, we become so indebted through the fines and the fees that they would leverage upon us that we would never dare gather like this again because we would be indebted servants for forever, probably. Even our children and our legacy of family would be dampened and, and hurt by, the, by the, just the oppressive uh, financial burden of whatever the, uh, they, they, they penalized us with. That, that's Saul. That's, that's his legacy. So he's like Harvard education level Saul. The, the, the top of the line from the right family in the right way, the most zealous, the, the most feared, and then he, he, he encounters Jesus. See, Saul had, had everything right. Like, I don't know how many of you even know there is an Old Testament and a New Testament. Like, I was kind of far along in life before I knew those things really, really were, were more than just like divisions in my Bible. Like, I thought it literally meant one was old, one was new, they had a rewrite or something. I, I didn't know. <laughs> All right? But I, I don't know, like, you, you might just still be sitting there, like, under the, under, the, under the chair in front of you trying to still find the book of Titus, right? Like, you're, you might be new to the Bible. What this, this guy, like, he had memorized huge chunks of the Bible. Like, he, he had probably memorized, like, this much of the, of, of the Scripture, maybe more. This guy was, was smart. He was zealous. He was religious. Everything that it took to be a Jew, there was no Jew better than him. And he was out to wipe from the earth anything other than his way of faith. Like, he's a guy that had it all right except for one thing. He was missing Jesus. He was missing the fact that all that education and all that zealous uh, attitude and that, that pursuit of righteousness should have had him as the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but he missed it. So God in his grace interrupted him on a road to Damascus in a miraculous story. You can read it in the book of Acts. And he was, he was changed forever. He was humbled and he was changed. And then what happens next is a beautiful picture of, of discipleship when a man named Ananias came alongside Saul, like days after he was still that Saul that, was, that everyone feared. 
like he was a terrorist, this guy goes to him, begins to explain to him what he's been missing, that this voice you encountered, it was Jesus, this, this, this experience, it was Jesus. Here's how what you already know and what you need to know fit together. And so he discipled him. Then scripture doesn't tell us a ton, but it says Peter spent some time with Paul and Barnabas spent some time with Paul. And, and then Paul went away to Tarshish and, and we believe that he spent some time with other believers in Tarshish. And while he was in Tarshish, he, he became this, this man, not just educated, not just zealous, not just a really great Jew for the cause. He became a disciple of Jesus. And so when he bursts back on the scene and, and Peter and the guys invite him back to the party because now he knows some things, He's a product of discipleship. And what he does next is he begins to pour into men like Timothy and like Barnabas and John Mark and like Luke, the author of Acts. And, and, and like some of these, he walks with the disciples. He walks with these guys. He learns how to do what Jesus had been doing. And he just invests his life to raise up new believers, to raise up new leaders, and to plant new churches. And I'm, it's a lot like what's happening here, to be honest with you. So Titus is also a product of discipleship. And now this letter is about Paul helping Titus connect the dots like, hey, everything I've done with you, do with these people because you've got to learn to see yourself differently. You're no longer just little Titus following Paul. You're no longer just one of my guys. You're, you're my guy who I'm going to leave here to do what I've been doing with you with those people. And there's some stuff you have to know, right? So in chapter one, he starts it all off. He says, he says that you need to keep something in mind, right? He says, now what I'm getting ready to tell you is going to be hard. So I want you to keep in mind, keep focused on the great hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now I read that, and I've been a pastor a while. I grew up in a pastor's home. I coach church planters. I coach other pastors. And here's what I know about being a pastor. It's hard. All right? And I'm not telling you that because I am one and I think my job's harder than you. I used to be in corporate America too. That was hard too. It was just different. But leadership is hard, right? You bring leadership inside of a place where you're leading volunteers to believe things like a man we cannot see loves us in a way that no one's ever loved us and intervened in a way that no one else could fix us. And we're asking people to lead, lead towards that and to move towards that and to let it affect their life. Like that's difficult. And then you, you start looking at the other side of spirituality and you start seeing like, wait, there, there's this other dark side of spirituality that's the result of sin that doesn't want us to be good at that job. So most of the pastors I know are lonely. Most of the pastors I know have to fight for community and fight to be in relationship. Uh, you may not know this about, about me because I, I haven't been here before, but about a lot of pastors, uh, we, we study the word of God for a living, but yet our devotional time is often uh, laborious to find more than a sermon in that time, right? So like, I think what Paul's doing for Titus, he's saying, hey, bro, if you don't get anything else right, you're going to need this. Because when you go into Crete, I know Matt told you last week, it's a lot like Boston, and it's a tough place. People are changing over all the time. There's a lot of people that don't like what you believe. There's people that, that have other ideas. Uh, there's going to be people that love you. There's going to be people that love you for a minute and then don't love you anymore. There's going to be all kinds of opportunities for people to push back. You're going to need to know that it's not just about you. It's not just about the people. It's about the one who saved you and gave you eternal hope in him. Like that's like, bro. Like, that's, this is the Chad Merrill unabridged version. Bruh. <laughs> right? I don't know about how you guys go, but where I'm from, when one of your buddies looks, in the, looks at you in the eye and they say, bruh. Like they're about to lay it on you, something you need to hear, right? 
This is the product of discipleship, this book of Titus. Paul's reminding Titus, keep in mind the hope of eternal life in Christ. You're going to need it. Bruh. <laughs> right? Leadership's tough. But he needs to keep this in mind. Then chapter 2, he goes on. He says, with all that in mind, you're going to do something you've never done before. But you've seen me do it. You're going you're to take this church and you're going to build it up. And, and together we're going to work and we're going we're to raise up leaders. And out of those leaders, you're going to install men of God to lead from a point of maturity within the church. We're going to call them elders. They're going to help you lead this church because discipleship's not a one-man job. We're calling people into this thing. So this, this whole beautiful thing, is, it starts Paul from Ananias, Paul from Barnabas and Peter, to, to Titus, who's also been affected by Timothy and some other great men you find in Scripture, all the way to these men who are nameless that have been installed as the elders of this church and now the, the ministry of the church. He's, you need to keep this in mind because we're going to structure this thing around you and it's going to outlast you. It's going to make disciples for years to come if we do this right. This is how the church is to function. That's kind of what chapter 2 was about. This is how you live among the body of faith and how, how you live towards one another. And then he, in verse 15, he begins to transition out of that. And it's this beautifully crafted uh, uh, sentence. And this is one of those times where grammar really helps us. Any grammar teachers in the room? Any like English nerds, like the proofreaders of the room? You're going to love this, all right? So the numbers in your Bible that give chapter headings, uh, those weren't in there when Paul wrote the letter. Right? Somebody else put those in there to help us find it when we need to go find it. Right? That's what it's there for. But sometimes uh, the grammar of English, when it's translated into our language, helps us see something that's really important. And in verse 15, you'll realize it's a paragraph all by itself. It's like, it's like two sentences, but it's a break from what came before, and it's a break from what's coming next. Paul uses it in this letter to both kind of put an exclamation point on what he just taught in the letter, what Matt walked through last week, and to introduce what he's getting ready to, to, to say. Here, here's what I think's happening in this sentence. I think this is Paul saying, bruh, everything that I've told you is really important. So you need to remember those things as you lead from where you are because what I'm getting ready to tell you next is even harder because that's in the church where at least people want to be there with you and most of them agree on what you're doing, but now I'm going to tell you how to send them out and how to live this out out there in everyday life, when, when nobody wants to see you coming and people really don't want to hear what you have to talk about. So that's where I want to jump in. I think, I think this is it. This, this discipleship journey that's churning, this, this teaching, this structuring, it's kind of a handbook for Titus as he, as he goes. And then in, in verse 15, there's this, this bookend uh, moment. So look at, this, look at this verse. He says, declare these things. Somebody underline declare. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, underline exhort and rebuke, let no one disregard you. Do you hear it? So declare, exhort, rebuke, let no one disregard you. That just does not sound like a great pep talk for a new leader to me, does it? Like, here's what I want you to know. Like all that stuff I told you is really hard, I want you to keep teaching that, and then I want you to encourage people in that. And you're going to be the guy who takes responsibility to rebuke them when they get it wrong. They're not going to love that because as we've already seen in chapter 2, most of them are older than you. And you're going to have great excuses to, 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 to just say, you know what, it's not my job to judge. 
Who am I to judge, right? Like, oh man, I respect your elders, Titus. Let's back away from that one. Let's, let's let the elders handle that. He said, no, you've got this ready-made excuse. Don't let anyone disregard you. So I, I, want, I want to just uh, kind of walk through this a little bit. Declare, exhort, rebuke. So this, this whole letter starts with that reminder. I'm going to keep saying this. And it's, I'm repetitive. When I repeat stuff, it's because I think it's important. So if you're a note taker, if you keep hearing it, write it down. It might be important, all right? So he starts with the reminder, keep in mind the hope of eternal life in Christ. Then at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I want you to teach according to sound doctrine. You guys know you, your pastors love sound doctrine here. And one of the goals of the Church at the Well is to teach you how to think rightly about the things of the Lord and about his word, how to apply it. So he's, he's the same thing Paul's doing here. Keep this in mind and teach accordingly. And now, after you've learned all those things, I want you to declare, exhort, rebuke, let no one disregard. So Paul's summing up the coming work. Like We built all this, and we're not even done. We built all this because every time we have church, you go out there after we're done, right? Like you, you don't live, maybe you do life together, maybe you're in groups, but you don't like work and, and live. You're, you're, this is not some commune, cultish kind of thing that we all just stay together, protected from everyone else. That's not the goal of Christianity. We gather here to scatter there, right? Like that's, that's how it's supposed to go. And so here he is, he's, he's summing up the work. After the church is built, after the leaders are in place, after sound doctrines are consistently being taught, after people are learning those doctrine, doctrines, learning to apply them, this is how you lead. Declare, exhort, rebuke. Let no one disregard. So we'll start with that word exhort. Like, I don't think I heard anybody this morning say, hey, bruh, I just would like to exhort you today. Can I exhort you for a minute? Like, that's kind of weird language for us. So I want you to think the word encourage, Right? Think, exhort means to encourage, but what it really means, it's like has way more punch in the Greek. I, I'm not a Greek nerd, but every now and then it really helps. So I want to unpack it. I'm going to tell you how to pronounce it because I don't know either, but I want to I tell you what it means. This, this word that we get ex exhort from in the Greek could literally translate to mean to invite in, to, to gently call someone to your side. Does that not sound like discipleship? Hey, bruh, come on with me, right? Like that's, that's what I'm seeing in this passage, this, this exhort them, encourage them, point out to them when they get it right. There's also another definition. At times, the same word is used in the New Testament, and it's, it's used to, in, in the context of, of comfort or teaching with gentle, soft care. It's, it's kind of like with, with my kids. You, you, some of you have kids. I, I've met a lot of them. You've got some pretty cool kids in here. But I, know, I know there's some things about my kids that frustrate me. How about you? Like, my tendency as a dad is I'm really good at rebuke. I'm really good at no, because I said so, because this is a chadocracy, not a democracy. That's why. Like, it's, and there's a place for those things. But what I've learned about my children is, is, is Kendall, the one many of you know, is wildly different from the other four. I have five kids. And every one of them is wildly different. What works best for every one of them, though, is when I gently invite them along to my side and we walk and we talk and I say, hey, did, have you thought about why that didn't go the way you thought it would go? Have you thought about why you're continually frustrated by this one relationship? 
Have you thought about this, this, this rebellion that you're in right now, that it might be consequence? You know, it's this, it's this, I invited them alongside because from my perspective as a dad, way older than them, I can see things that they can't see because I'm a little bit ahead of them in life. That's what I love about discipleship. See, Titus doesn't need the status of community as, as an elder. In, in their culture, someone who had lived a long life or had achieved many things would have been esteemed just for kind of like just for surviving in some ways, but for the wisdom and the philosophy and the things that they valued. But in 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 in, in spiritual things, in discipleship, all, all Titus really needed, I think what Paul's pointing out to him, it's like, hey man, as long as you're one step ahead of other people. You can invite them alongside and show them the things that they have not yet seen because you have been shown. See, that's the thing about discipleship. Whether you've been a Christian for one day or a or hundred years, there's someone who needs to know what you know about Jesus, someone who needs to know what you've experienced about Jesus. This is Paul remind Titus, your story matters, man. Like you have, you have sat under good teaching. You have the authority of others given to you. And I have, I, have, I have given you trust. And so stand in my credibility, stand in the credibility of the Father and the perfect word and just walk with people. Invite them in. Encourage them. Show them the grace of helping them get it right. And can, I, can I just camp there for a second? Like I don't know how it is in Boston, but where I live in the South, like people do the same stuff over and over, even though it's not the right stuff. Does that ever happen here? <laughs> do you ever do that? Like I, my wife was the other day, we were talking about somebody in the church, and we were, we were talking about, I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they continue to do that. And I had to come to the realization, it's like, you know what? I don't even know why I do the stuff I do half the time. Don't we need someone to exhort us and to encourage us and to come alongside us, to invite us gently in and say, hey, can we just talk about what the Word says about this? Can we, can we talk about, like, I know what you might have meant, but can I tell you what that sounded like? That's when I get a lot. I, I think your heart's good, but man, your tone's bad. Like, you know, I need, to, I need to invite you in and help you hear it from my perspective. This is discipleship. So this, this beautiful picture of your role is to declare these things, declare all the things you know about God and all the things I'm about to tell you next. Exhort the people that are entrusted to your care. Exhort the people that you're in relationship with. Invite them in. See, I, I think this is beautiful because um, the more and more I watch discipleship happen, the more and more it starts to become clear to me that that I try to do too much. Like there, there's three things that have to happen in, in, in the discipleship relationship. And, and these, this isn't new to you. It might be new language, but, but I know your church believes this. See, every, every discipleship relationship has three parts. There's God's part. He always faithfully does his part. I'm so glad he's in the, in the, in the game with us. There, there's my part as the disciple maker, the one inviting someone in. But then there's this crazy part that, 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 that even though God does his part perfectly, and if I do my part right, the person I'm walking with doesn't have to do their part. Isn't that crazy? So there's God's part, my part, their part, and I will greatly frustrate myself in trying to do their part for them or force them to do their part on my timing. But he says, don't do that. Walk with them, trust the Lord, trust sovereign God is at work in their life, invite them in, walk with them, tell them what they know, encourage them, help them know when they get it right. Don't, don't you just want to see uh, patterns of good behavior repeated in your kids? So you say, hey, that's it, that's it, that's awesome, here's a quarter, right? That's how it works. <laughs> and, and so, and new believers need the same thing. 
They need, so if, if someone's dead in Christ, they don't need our condemnation. They don't need our judgment. They don't need us banging on the Bible, telling them about the doctrine of, of, of whatever. They need us to share our life with them. They need us to, to, to share new truth with them. They need us to share new habits with them and let them inv be invited into us. Just come alongside of us and see that we are learning too. That we are being affected too. That our life before Christ looked one way, our life after Christ looked another, and God is working in us. And because of that work, we want to tell others about what he is doing in us and how it's affecting our life and how we respond. This is the beauty of the Bible. This is the beauty of someone like Paul being in here. See, the more I read Scripture, the less impressed I am with the heroes of the Bible because it tells us the truth about who they were and how much they had to be moved toward Christ and changed by Christ before they could pick up the mission of Christ. It's beautiful. In fact, that's the call to discipleship from the very beginning. If you read, if you read when Jesus calls his first disciples, he says this crazy thing to them. He says, hey, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I'm sitting there like, I don't even know if that's legal. <laughs> I don't, the only place, if I'm, if I'm Peter or, or, or these guys on the beach, I'm thinking the only time I ever heard that was in the Old Testament, and it was not a good thing. When the hooks came down from heaven and snatched people, that was a curse. That was not a good thing. And so, but they followed him anyway. Why? Because of the promise that deep down inside of us, all of us know that we are insecure. We, we know our incapacities. We know our fears. We're very acquainted with the things that we know about us, and we're hoping there's hope for people like us. And so when someone like Jesus that we see in, in that kind of light, a man that John has been proclaiming as the way, the way, the way, the one you've been waiting for, comes along and says, hey, follow me. I'm going to turn you into something that you're not. Don't you just want to lean in and go, I've been trying to be that. I've been trying to be something that I'm not. I'm trying to work out because I'm fat, and I want to be something that I'm not. I, I, I've been trying to learn because I'm not that smart and I want to be something that I'm not. I want to be kind, not mean. I want to be something that I'm not. Like we're always efforting toward these things. That's why New Year's resolutions, that's why all these things. And so he's saying, hey, this is not going to be easy because there's, there, people think they want to become something new, but the inertia of that process is going to require you, Titus, to do what I've done with you and what men have done with me to invite them alongside and exhort them and encourage them and nudge them. And when they keep making the same mistake over and over, you keep inviting them in. It's beautiful. It's exhort. Let's keep going. See, I, I think as we grow, um, at least this is how it works for me. Let me just talk about me for a minute, not you. We just met. <coughs> Exhortation has to turn into rebuke with me. Is, is that true for anybody else? Here's the thing that I'm always last to realize, that I'm wrong. Like, I always assume I have the very best idea until you have, can prove yours is better. Right? I never walk into any room and think I, could, I couldn't lead this better than they lead it. I, I walk into restaurants and the wait's too long. I got seven ideas of how they could reconfigure their hostess stand and restaff their restaurant and it would be fine. Because I know, right? But you know what it feels like to be wrong? Do you know? Up until the very last minute, it feels just like being right. I need rebuke. 
I need some people to come along in my life and to tell me the things that I'm missing. I, and so this is the grace of God's word. Some of you, you're here, you're not sure you believe what we believe, but you're here. And, and there's some value to, to why you're here. There's something that you've decided. Maybe there's hope there. Maybe those people have some joy there. They, they sing. That's weird, but they do it. And so it must mean something. So I'm going to go there. And, and over time, you're going to find like there's going to become this Sunday that you realize, man, I've been coming here a lot more than I meant to. And uh-oh, I sang, I'm becoming one of them. And you're going to be walking that out over time. And you're going to be doing better than you've ever done, right? Going to church more, singing more for sure, drinking more coffee. That's, a, that's, a God, that's God's grace to us, amen? And, 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 uh, and giving yourself extra credit for opening the Word sometime and meaning to the days that you forgot, like praying a little bit more than you used to. And if someone needs to come alongside you and tell you where your next steps are, lest you get stuck right there. Like there's, there's this grace in rebuke. There's grace in rebuke. Like when my kids uh, want, get, are headed towards danger, how bad of a father would I be if I let them go? No, like sometimes I gently exhort them and invite them alongside. Other times I grab them by their hoodie and yank them out of the road, right? Like rebuke feels harsh in the moment, but it is loving and it is grace-filled. Because can I, can I just ask us to get honest for a minute? Can we get honest? This church at the well. We can be honest, right? Anybody have blind spots? Like a place where maybe your wife sees you way more clearly than you see you? Or you have that friend that constantly loves you enough to call you and go, hey, bruh, you're doing it again. You're doing that thing that you do? You good? Are you okay? Because I'm starting to see some symptoms that maybe you're not okay because you remember the last time this happened? And so these guys are keeping me out of the ditch. They're, they're helping to redirect me. And I, I used to hate that. I, honestly, I'm an Enneagram 8. I still hate that. Like, don't tell me what to do unless you want to make me mad, right? I, you can give me ideas, help me think it's my idea, and I'm in, right? But to tell me I'm just wrong and I need to do something different, I'm, I buck up against that every time. I'm giving you the Heisman immediately, right? <laughs> but listen, don't we need that? The grace of God in my life has come in the form of rebuke many, many times in, in, in a time that preceded great growth in my life where someone looked into my life and they said, Chad, I love you, bro, but bruh, you got to get right here. You're, you're, there's a lot of you in that. Where, where's your family in that? Hey, hey man, like you're spending a lot of time by yourself. And, but you're calling people to relationship. What are you doing? Like, I know you're a little bit introverted, but you can't call your church to relationship and then not live that way yourself. That's a recent one. I'm calling it work. They're calling it isolation. We're, we're having an argument, but you know what? They were right. I was, I was getting unhealthy, and I didn't even know it. And it was the rebuke of my brother, the rebuke of a friend that ca called me out of my funk and helped me really get real about what was going on. And so I went to counseling in January. A Christian counselor helped walk me through some, of, some things that had been just a little bit distorted in my life, and I didn't even know it. I thought I was fine. But here's what I know about thinking that you're fine. Discipleship is this path, and Scripture says it's a narrow path. And here's what happens when we walk the narrow path. Often we walk it, and something gets in the way, and we take one step off course. The path's just right there. I can get back whenever I want, right? And then we don't even notice that the path veered that way, and we left one step uncorrected, which has us headed miles from our intended destination. 
We need that rebuke while there's still room to get back on the path. We need that rebuke from someone that knows the way to the path when the path has taken a turn and we're still headed off in a way because we thought we were fine. We need rebuke. And so he says, Titus, do not be afraid to exhort and definitely don't be afraid to rebuke. There's power to rebuke. And can I just tell you, like when I, when I preach this part of discipleship, it just doesn't sound awesome to the guests in the room. Does it? It doesn't sound awesome. Like we come to church hoping there's hope for us, there's relationship for us, there's encouragement for us. But when we get really get down to what makes us grow and what, what makes us move forward, when we really get down to what makes relationships last, it's it's the relationships that you know that someone loves you enough to look you in the eye and tell you when you're wrong. And and nobody does that better than God does. Because if you read his word long enough you will become offended. If you read his word long enough, you will be convicted. You will feel tension. And everything in me wants to believe that the Bible's wrong because I feel this. The Bible's wrong because I want this. The Bible's wrong because I, I, I believe this. But, but there's this, this moment when other brothers and, and the word of God in combination provide grace to me that gets me back on the path and not leaves me going off in my own direction. Rebuke is powerful. Paul's giving him a mindset to lead not just talk. Declare these things, exhort, rebuke. And I love what comes next. Do not let anyone disregard you. And I like that part. I told you I'm an Enneagram 8, so one of my passions is uh, I, I, I fight and argue with people. That's what I do. It's what we do for intimacy. We think it's nice, you hate it. It's just we don't even know we're doing it, right? That's how it goes. It's don't let anybody disregard me wants me to rise up and be, do not disregard me. Don't you know who I am? That's not the posture at all. He says, don't let anyone disregard you because you do this under the authority of Christ and his word. This was God's idea of the church. This was God's book that put these standards in place. This is the discipleship in your life that has shown you how it plays out. So stand on the authority of those who have placed you here and the Lord that you follow. See, that's the beautiful thing about the church. See, I wouldn't want to be a part of a church either if I'm just submitting to some dude, some guy, some family, some, some group of people that had some ideas, something that would die with them or maybe would be proven false. We've seen plenty of things. We actually call those cults, right? There's movies about them. But if, if, if Scripture is true, if it's really God's Word, like we said at the end of the reading, if it's eternal and it never needs editing, if it's the number one printed book in all of time and it doesn't need a rewrite then maybe standing on the authority of God's word and submitting to the authority that God puts in our life is grace to us. So Paul is reminding him, keep in mind the hope of eternal life. This is worth the cost. You, you, you stand on the authority of God's word and the, and the principles of God, not, not fight for the pleasure of people, the affirmations of people. When people are mad at you, go to the authority that's over your life. And if you're right, stay with them. You've gently invited them in. You've earned the right to rebuke. He says, he says give them this. Give them, give them this. Because this, this mindset would be the thing that derailed a guy like Titus. Titus was young. He had elders. I mean, you read chapter 2, it's all about the people older than him, older than him, older than him, empowering them. And, and so it would have easily been, been a, a temptation for him to shrink back. But he's supposed to keep the eternal life of Christ in mind, a teaching according to sound biblical doctrine. So he declares truth, that he exhorts towards truth. And when people drift off track, he's supposed to bring them back. At our church, we call that fighting for relationship. 
See, sin and, and, and departure from God's ways will always try to have you separating from God's people. And I believe one of the most beautiful, grace-filled, loving forms of rebuke is when, when someone from the body notices that someone else is missing and we go get them. And we gently invite them in and exhort them to return. And when we find out that something else was going on in their life, we rebuke it and then gently exhort them to come back. It's a beautiful picture. And all of this reinforces what you saw in verses 11 through 14. It reinforces what happens inside the church. But now Paul uses it to set up what's going on outside the church. So look at verse 1 of chapter 3. So declare, exhort, rebuke, don't be disregarded. And now another imperative command, you have to do this. These imperative, imperative just simply means these are things you have to do. You have to do these things. Remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak of e evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, I feel like Paul could have hit the brakes for a minute with Titus, but he hit the gas. He's like, you think it was hard in there? Wait till you go out here. Because when, they, when you send them out every week and they keep coming back, or you send them out and then you see them, and you're going to have to continue, continue, continue to remind them. He keeps his foot on the gas, declare, exhort, rebuke, let no one despise. Now remind, and remind them to be submissive to authority and obedient. Now, I don't know about what you guys thought about all the, the, the pandemic stuff, but I, I hated it. I hated it. I don't like to be told what to do, right? But I, I, did, I, honored, I honored our authorities. I wore masks when they told me to, where they told me to. I hated it, but I did it. Right? I, don't, I don't know if it helped me or not. I, I trust people that supposedly know more than I do, and, and so I did what I was supposed to do, uh, partly because I belong to Christ, and that's what we're supposed to do. But, but I didn't love it, right? And, and, but this is not what he's talking about. It's not like wearing a mask on the tee. This is not written like post Magna Carta and, and civil rights. It's not that. This is written in a time where rulers did not get voted in. They didn't get voted out. They were like extremely powerful, absolute rulers. And that's not even it. Like all the, all the background religions and faiths of the land and, and the claims of the rulers, like there was even this implication that not only were they just in charge, but they were divinely in charge. Like Caesar was not just the king. He was, he was God. He was a God under the authority of the gods. And so there was oppression going on in this time. They're, they're try, Caesar was trying to rid the nation by this point of all the threats to his divinity and his power. This is after the time when they started outlawing the proselytization. I think I say no, you can't proselytize. I can say that one. I can't say the other one. You can't proselytize people to become Jews. In fact, you can't do overtly Jewish things in public. Like, go be Jews in private, be Romans out here. That was kind of the law. That's why Paul and Silas were locked up in Acts 16, because they were accused of being Jews trying to convert people to Judaism. And so these, these laws are out there. So anything that's tied to Christ, tied to faith, is being pushed down. And everything that's tied to Caesar and tied to Rome and the, the growth of the Roman Empire, which is, that's why we have roads, that's why we have water systems, they're impacting the world, is being lifted up. And so Paul's given these instructions, not in some kind of way as like, hey man, things are pretty good here. Don't rock the boat. It's not that. Paul's not doing that at all. He's not saying, hey, th things are going your way, so don't mess that up. He's saying, hey, things are not going your way, so give in to it. 
Be obedient to the authorities. Be, be, be under their rule. Whenever it is, he teaches in other places, whenever uh, scripture is in contradictory to what they're telling you, you can follow God in those things, but the rest of the time you follow the authorities that God has allowed in your life. He even goes as far as to say in, in, in uh, I think it's Romans 13, that it's grace to us that God has installed even the, even the wrong lures, rulers in, in, in the office. So he's not telling them to keep a low profile He's telling them to obey a government that is already oppressing them. To obey a government that doesn't even want them here. He, what he's really saying to them is this, and I think, I think this is where we get it wrong because we're in America and everything in us wants to buck up against that because that's not how we roll in America, right? We'll vote your butt right out of office if you want to do that. We'll, we'll get you out. But here he is, he's saying, no, this is a chance to live in a way that is compelling to the people around you to choose humility, to choose devotion and trust in the one who, who is your ultimate authority and has allowed these authorities in your life. It's a push to obedience. It's a push to submission during a hard, hard time. Paul's reminding Titus that we're called to live like Christ. And man, wasn't he treated unfairly? He died a death that we deserved and he didn't. He was beaten. He didn't do anything wrong. He was wrongly accused, convicted in a kangaroo court that had violated all of the principles of Roman government. He says, hey, do, do that. Live like that. Even when things are not fine and even as things are likely getting worse, the way you handle oppression is not marches on the Capitol. It's not to revolt and rebel. It's to, as long as it depends on you and doesn't contradict Christ, submit and obey. And showing this humble submission to the sovereignty of God requires that we show humble submission to those he allows to rule. So we obey and I think when he tells him that first, because everything that follows that is, are, is this list, of, this list of, of principles that we're to live by that are all rooted in, in a lifestyle of humility. So all seven of these imperatives are traits that exhibit humility. Submission, obedience, be ready for good works, speak evil of no one, avoid quarrels, be gentle, show courtesy. All these things require humility. And it's humility... That's rooted in verse 3. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Can I, can I just stop here for a minute and apologize to you on behalf of the church? Like some of you, you're here and church is new to you and you found a place where you finally don't feel judged and you feel welcomed and like people really care. Or, or maybe you're just curious and you're hoping that's true. Can I just tell you that the reason the church has the reputation that we have often in, in social issues and in these online fights is because I think we have forgotten what we were saved from. I think this is Paul saying, hey, bro, keep in mind the hope of eternal life in Christ. Because all the stuff that's going to derail you used to be that. Used to be that. And all the things that you used to be are the opposite of the things that God is trying to turn you into. All the things I'm calling, to, calling you to, they aren't the things that save you. They're the things that result from you being saved. As you move toward Jesus and are changed by Jesus, you're going to find yourself living more and more like Jesus and taking up his mission. And that's going to be costly. 
See, I think the crazy thing about the American church was, was also evident in the church of these days. This is a time of great prosperity, great uh, invention and innovation. And, and there was this, this, this Roman dream that was happening that if you had ideas that were good enough, you could get them done because they wanted to invent the Roman's road system and the, and the, and the water and the technology and the philosophy of the day. And there, were, there was room for you to be you and be an artist and all these things. And, and yet he said, hey, that's not, that's not the goal. It's not the goal. You have to remember that this is not about you. It's for you, yes, but it's not about you. Because we were the foolish, the disobedient, the led astray, the slaves to passions and pleasures. See, the source of our humility is rooted in the right doctrine that you're teaching, Titus. That's what he's saying. The, hort, the source of our, our humility is rooted in the grace and the truth and the hope of that eternal life that I keep reminding you of, Titus. See, people who have experienced deliverance should be the most humble. They should be the most aware of the grace-filled, mercy-driven act of deliverance that came to us when we didn't deserve it. That we were dead, we were estranged, we were hopeless, we were wicked, but in Christ we can be called to life and to greater purpose. See, my favorite thing about Scripture is my story is still my story. Like, I didn't get a new name and God didn't erase my past. But can I tell you what he's doing in my life even as I stand here today and I'm blown away by it? God redeemed me, not just to get me to heaven, but he also redeemed me to repurpose my life so that I can gently walk with others, rebuke others. Uh, I, can, I can disciple others. I can be discipled. And here's what happens. What lands in front of me often are people who sit down in my office or sit down with me at a coffee shop somewhere. Not nearly as good as the well, by the way, but it's, it's a good one. Um, and they'll say things to me like, Pastor, there's no way that you'll understand this. And then they'll start talking about addiction, divorce, stepfamily dynamics. They'll start talking about pride. They'll start talking about corporate America robbing them of their faith because they were chasing their dream. And I just sit there and I just start grinning, this big, dumb grin. Because you know why? That's my story. And now the things that I'd most regretted the things that I wish were different about my life, the things that are prone to make me feel shame and guilt, those are the things that God plops right in front of me and he says, hey, tell them what you used to be like when, before you knew me. Tell them. Tell them how angry you were, how given to selfish pleasures you were, how foolish you were, how you married the wrong girl who was an addict and how all that, you lived through that, you barely survived it. Tell them how I delivered your kids from that. Tell them, tell them how I've rewritten your story. Tell them about Tanisha, the greatest grace that I've ever put in your life when I plopped her down in your life. Give them hope, man. I love it. I love it. Because see, this, this reminder that this is who we used to be and this is who we're becoming it's the thing that will keep you in the game, and it's the thing that will compel anyone who's here It's curious, anyone who's here cynical, anyone who's here skeptical or has been hurt by the church. What you're desperately looking for is people with a limp telling you how to walk. That's what you're looking for. These seven traits here match up with the seven traits that he called to us before. You remember, you remember I told you there were seven. Look at this. The former self... It's marked by foolishness, disobedience, strays easily, self-indulgent, serving self, prone to malice and even hated. The beauty of the gospel is that was Paul's story. That was Titus's 
story. That would be the story of everyone who was part of their church, everyone who meets Jesus. So here's what I'm trying to tell you. The hero of this church is never the pastor. The hero of the church is never the disciple maker. The hero of the church is not even the men whose names are at the title of these headings on our Bible. The hero of the church is Jesus. It's Jesus. Because only a God like him can save people like me and like you. See, he's calling Titus to humility and to understanding and to a deepened uh, devotion to Jesus and his gospel that will carry him when people tell him he's wrong, when friends leave his life, when people move out of his city, when people he loved don't love him back, when people he walked with go astray and don't come back. There's a fundamental hope in being reminded. There's a compelling hope in being shown that in Christ the gospel is so amazing that watch what it can do. I wanna wanna capture this passage for you right now. Are you ready? Watch what the gospel can do. Foolish disobedience turns into humble submission and obedience. The gospel does that. Those who are easily led astray, those who are are self-indulgent and slaves to selfish passions become those who serve others. The gospel does that. Those who are prone to hateful things, prone to malice and envy, become gentle and eager to do good works. The gospel does that. Those who were hateful and hated become those who show courtesy to all people. Because we walk through the world knowing we used to be that, and now we get to be this, and it's worth it. Would you pray with me, church? Father, I don't know the stories of the people in this room, but I do know this. You do, and none of us are here by accident. So God, for the person here who's wondering if they've been gone for too long or too far gone, I pray that you would show them that you are the God who redeems even the worst of their story. You have purpose and identity for them that's rooted in your son, not in their story. I pray that today would be the day that they just decide, you know what, if God can do that, if he can turn my foolishness into obedience, he can turn my lostness into purpose, then I'll follow a God like that. If that's you and maybe the Holy Spirit's stirring you up, maybe that's not indigestion today, maybe that's like conviction. Name it correctly and deal with it. God, just just say it to God. God, I see that you're working in my life and I confess my need to you. I give my life to you. Forgive me, lead me. I'll follow you. Some of you in the room, Christian in the room, new Christian in the room, a person who maybe walked away a long time ago, is God just stirring that you need that person in your life to to exhort and to rebuke and to walk with you? I want you to just commit today that before you leave here, you'll talk to Matt or Christy or Kevin or Julie or Tony or somebody you've seen on stage before and ask them to connect you to someone who can be that for you, that can walk with you. Those of you who have been walking with others who are discipling you, is it time that you disciple someone else? That you become the one who embraces the call to exhort and rebuke and gently remind. This is how the church works. Next to God's word and his son, maybe the church is the greatest grace he shows us. Walk in it. Live in it. See what he can do. Father, would you inhabit the prayers of people right now and the songs that we're about to sing? Would you have your way with us? In Jesus' name, amen.